Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. My name's Dominic Booth, standing in as host today um, for Richard Fay, who's taken the first week of football's return as an opportunity to get a little bit of holiday in. I'm delighted to be joined by um, our Chief United writer, Samuel Lucas. How are you, Samuel? Very well, thank you. Nice to be back. Yeah, good. very good to be back. Had some, have some football to talk about. United, obviously, drawing one all with Spurs on Friday night. Samuel, you were one of the, the privileged few who were able to attend at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And you saw, I guess, a, a game of two halves, a United performance of two halves, but a point that was more than merited in the end. And I guess United may be a little bit agreed that they didn't win the game. Yeah, I think it's first it, first of all, it's important just to stress um, to, or express how, um, sorry, my, my gratitude and other journalists' gratitude to the staff at Spurs who were impeccable um, before, during and, and after the game. Um, it's it's not ideal, uh, this, this whole restart. It, it does feel rather surreal, but uh, there were no issues whatsoever and it was, it was carried out very professionally and the supporters, of course, uh, stayed away. The obedience has been impeccable uh, across these these first round of matches so um the restart's gone ahead without any snags which again makes a mockery of the whole neutral venue uh talk we had for some time uh as for the match itself i thought it was a commendable point and a commendable performance from united all things considered they i thought they were actually quite quite good up until bergvine scored but then that seemed to knock the stuff out of them and they could have gone in uh, maybe 2-0 down at half-time. Son had a very good chance. Um, Fernandez was excellent throughout. He pretty much picked up from where he left off. Um, but having said that, I don't think he was. He would necessarily maybe have been man of the match without Paul Pogba, who obviously changed the game. Um, I think the first, first contribution he made was to win the ball off Sissoko, that sliding tackle, and then he put the cross in that went out for a corner. And uh, I think just looking at, why scout afterwards that was recorded as, as his one stray pass or unsuccessful pass and of course there was an element of success to it in that they'd won a corner uh, so United looked very good with Pogba um, back in the team I thought the in-game management from Solskjaer was sensible with the substitutions he made um, I just feel as though at the start the way he used Fred who just seemed very isolated in that holding midfield role was counterproductive it's it's not Fred's forte um he got caught out a couple of times uh, very very early on and then when it came to the goal I'd have said he just lacks cynicism really because I think if McTominay's chasing Bergvine who he's not going to catch because Bergvine's so fast he probably tripped him up he gets the yellow card um but he, he stops the goal uh, but that said the the defending from Maguire was was diabolical I don't think Maguire's had the most sterling of seasons anyway um but to get bypassed as easily as he did was was quite alarming and of course with De Gea we've we've seen him commit an error like that already this season yeah much of the the post game comments centered on on Pogba but also De Gea obviously Roy Keane made the headlines with his let's say slightly uh, outrageous comments about De Gea I mean how much of that did you did you actually agree with and, and how much of is that an issue for United, De Gea's form and, and those mistakes that seem to be creeping into his game at the moment? It was amusing just being sat there at half-time and the monitors were obviously showed keen, so I could see him, but I couldn't hear him. But it was quite <laughs> clear that something... You didn't need um, to hear really. Yeah, you could, you could pretty much tell that a volcano had erupted and then just on the Twitter feed, everyone's quoting what he said and I'm getting messages from, from my father and from my friends saying what, what Keane's been saying at half-time. Um, I mean, I think he'd calmed down by by the end of it. I, I, that I just think that's 
that is Keane's nature. He is at heart a very fierce character. He it doesn't take much to get him angry. His his standards are so sky high that if if they slip, he's going to be on your case. And yeah. that's that that leadership, um, rightly or wrongly, seems to belong to a bygone era. But given that that leadership was present at one, in the most successful period in United's history, a lot of United fans still value it, and I can understand that. Um, I mean, God forbid if he got a text off Gary Neville during the game telling him how quiet De Gea was in an empty stadium, because I know De Gea is quite a phlegmatic character as it is, but I think there was one murmur uh, where he said something and it was kind of unintelligible. And obviously a lot of people want goalkeepers to be vocal, but um, that's just not his style. It it was a really bad error. I thought at the time um, I, I was very reluctant to go with the instant oh what a goal tweet from Bergvine because I thought one how the hell has he got there from that position and nobody's put in a tackle and it was quite clear from where we were positioned which was not not far off being in line with the penalty area um certainly the 18 yard box that um that Taya probably should have saved it it looked just too straight a shot too routine uh for him not to get it and as I said, I kind of alluded to it in my in my piece. It would be it's one of those mistakes that could be forgivable after months without playing. Um, he didn't really have anything to do up until that point. Up point, not even take a back pass on board. But <clears throat> unfortunately for De Gea, it's it's a familiar error. Um, he, he did it against Van Aanholt earlier this season. I mean, looking at the amount of mistakes he's made this season compared to that that dreadful running he had last year, he, he has made fewer mistakes. I think he's made a lot fewer mistakes this season, but the mistakes have been more glaring and they have been more egregious when you think of the hologram hands at Watford, uh, the Calvert-Lewin doziness at Everton. Uh, the Bergvine one wasn't, I don't think, as egregious as some of them, but it, it was just such a routine shot to save and it, it unfortunately for, for De Gea it reminded me of the Schalke goalkeeper in their first game back against Dortmund when I think Dortmund won 4-0 and when, when the Bundesliga restarted it, it was it was quite eerily reminiscent of that and the fact he saved the header from Son it, it wasn't it wasn't as if he atoned or anything like that that was a save he should be making um, and of course you know it, it, it's just a topical uh, thing at the moment, the United goalkeeping situation, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than just saying bring Henderson back and replace De Gea. I think there have been times this season where we have seen the best of De Gea. He made a great save um, from Rodri in the win at City in December. Uh, there was the one-man defence against Sheffield United at Bramall Lane in the first half, where it seemed to be you know, Sheffield United won David De Gea nil at half time. There was a great save from Jordan Henderson um, at Hamfield, and we've said that we've seen that before from De Gea, where he's made you know, genuinely world class saves at, at Liverpool. Um, and I think before the weekend, he'd, he conceded just one goal in his last last four games, and that was the Calvert Lewin one, which during that period seemed just to be an aberration for him. So it's it's been a strange season for him. It's not been a good season for him by any stretch, but I don't think he's necessarily a busted flush. And with someone like Henderson, who at the moment, I don't think you can deny that he's a better goalkeeper than De Gea on form. And that's been the case throughout the whole season. But I feel as though when when the focus is is on him, um, a little bit like with England at the under 20, Euro under-21s last summer, he can make mistakes. And I thought, against Newcastle. The, the first goal is a little bit forgivable. I know he probably should go with, with his left foot to try and block St. Maxim's um, shot, but I thought for the Ritchie goal, he wasn't guarding his near post well enough. And if De Gea had conceded that goal, I think 
you know, it's a classic case that you judge goalkeepers through the prism of their reputations. If De Gea had conceded that goal, I suspect the co-commentator would have been in his case straight away. Whereas because it's Henderson, he's been in great form for most of the season. You allow him a little bit of leeway. But Chris Wilder's already said it. I mean, most most memorably after Henderson had that howler against Liverpool. If you want to be a top United goalkeeper and England goalkeeper, you've got to be concentrating at all times and you, you've got to eradicate those errors. And so I just think that it kind of worked in United's favour that Henderson didn't have the best of weekends. I think it was the first time he'd conceded three all season. Um, so it just allows them to take stock and look at it a bit more objectively rather than just saying, we've got to get De hair out of the team. And yeah, we've got to get Dean Henderson into it. United fans are, are sort of split into two camps on this one, aren't they? There's the, the ones who will defend their, you know, come what may, and there's one who obviously see the coming man in, in Henderson. But um, it's one for Solskjaer to think about, isn't it? I mean, the other the other talking point was obviously Pogba, Samuel. Um, it's funny, isn't it? You wait, you wait all this time for, for football to return. And then Paul Pogba, who's had even longer to wait for his return, looks like a player who's been playing week in week out his very best football you know I know it was only 30 minutes of of him playing but it was really a performance that's got everybody excited wasn't it and and something that Solskjaer now has to consider going forward how he gets Pogba and Fernandes into the team the, the makeup of the midfield it, it, it's all happened on the on the back of that 30 minute cameo absolutely and uh I think if Rashford wasn't as erratic as he was on Friday night they'd have had the left-footed sequel to his winner against Tottenham last season when he had that great ball from Pogba and he he didn't quite kill it as well as he'd have liked to and, and that Sanchez did quite well to nip in and, and get the tackle in but as I said Pogba was nine flawless I mean retrospectively I think I was maybe a bit harsh on giving him and Fernandez seven out of tens I think I did that just because United didn't win the game but as I said earlier I think Pogba only played well according to the um the, the statistics he, he only played one stray pass but that came to a corner so he, he pretty much didn't do anything wrong um, and I think the way United adjusted their game around him was was beneficial to him as well in that McTominay dropped back and with McTominay there you've got a more defensive minded player than Fred uh, in, in holding midfield then when Lindelof got injured McTominay had to drop back again central defence you've got Matic coming on who's a specialist who I thought was quite prudent with the ball I did feel sorry for Fred because I just think he was sold a pup a little bit in that Solskjaer played him too deep McTominay's leash was lengthened and it just isolated him when you've got players like Bergwijn and Son who can make those diagonal runs and like to cut inside um it's it's a real test of your of your metal as a defensive minded midfielder, and he's not really a defensive minded midfielder, Fred. I think he is. I don't want to make too many comparisons with him and Carrick, but there are obvious similarities between them. They're not tough tacklers. They are uh, players who like to operate deep and play the ball forward. But with Pogba, it, it was it was just a bonus for United that he's available. Again. He's available again. He's playing again. I think it was his first game in 176 days. And it was interesting. I mean, we, again, you know, we're very, very grateful to be able to attend these games. And it was, it was interesting just watching him warm up uh, before he came on, what he was saying. He seemed very engaged with what was going on. I think one of the things that has been, that's never changed really throughout this whole period where he has, he has looked to leave United and he's he's made no secret of that he he did try to leave last summer his agent confirmed it there's nothing I don't think there's anything remotely controversial about Pogba wanting to leave United last summer either and I don't think there's anything remotely controversial about him still wanting to leave United but his professionalism has always been um pretty immaculate when it comes to the matches uh and that's that's something that um 
is is at least you know that there's there's some sense of not relief for Solskjaer as such, but it, it at least come until the whole you know Minariola comes back with his tents for the next Pogba circus. It's not really something that's going to occupy their minds, and the whole COVID pandemic, of course, has you know. The, the, the noise around Pogba has quietened significantly. Raiola doesn't seem to have um, spoken for a while as well. So um, it's it suits United that Pogba is playing, that his agent is quiet, that they look good with him and Fernandes in the team. It was it was exciting watching those two playing together. And of course, there's going to be a clamour for Pogba to start against Sheffield United now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the makeup of that midfield is going to be an interesting one. I, I think I agree with you uh, when you say about... Fred and maybe he was he was isolated and overrun a little bit. Um, and I think Fred's best performances for United this season, you think maybe in January, February, uh, early March time, came with Matic next to him, who obviously, as you say, is a, a genuine defensive midfielder. But can United a- a- afford to to play Fernandez and Pogba in the same side? Is, the, is there a way of, of fitting them both in which retains that balance? I think that was the word that Solskjaer used um, when speaking to the media on Friday night, that he, he needs to retain the balance in the team. Yeah, I th- I think it's it's perfectly possible, but unfortunately, someone who does not deserve to be dropped is probably going to end up being dropped, and that's Fred because yeah. I don't think he is the right complement for those two players. It's it's that cliche about the the best players don't necessarily make for the best side. Now I know. Pogba hasn't played for a long time, but if you were to pick players just on their talent, then he's, he obviously gets in the team because he's the most talented footballer at United. And by that reckoning, you've got to adjust to that. So, of course, Fernandes can play a little bit further ahead. I thought Pogba, um, I mean, he occupied quite a deep role uh, against Tottenham, but he still got forward. He seemed to, that was one of the most impressive things about it. He managed that balance between um, sitting back at times and playing these wonderful long balls as he did with uh, to Rashford late on and getting forward at times to supplement the attack and of course win the penalty. Now if he's got the license to do that, that's great and he's going to muck in um, defensively which he's more than capable of doing I mean there used to be this myth he couldn't play in a midfield axis in the 4-2-3-1 but then he went and won the World Cup doing it with uh, N'Golo Kante but I'd probably say that Matic is is the most suitable foil there just because he is, I mean, he is the only expert uh, defensive midfielder at United. And I mean, I'm surprised myself by saying that because I think if you were to go back to the start of January, you'd never have envisaged that. And it was probably only because of the injuries to Pogba and McTominay that Matic didn't go in January. But he's had a really, really good, he's had a really good impact this calendar year. McTominay is obviously capable of playing that role, but it's interesting that Solskjaer, and Solskjaer's said this in press conferences, he wants to get more out of McTominay in in an attacking sense, and he has done that this season. Um, Again, I think up until his injury, McTominay probably was a candidate for the club's Player of the Year award. Um, And he's he can mix that that whole not silk and steel as such but he's got a few goals this season he's a very he's a player who puts himself about he's very aggressive um he's very energetic i think probably the reason why he started ahead of matic on friday night was on the strength of his performance against spurs in the reverse fixture back in december when Mourinho couldn't praise him enough which um was not a surprise because he did that a lot when he managed him at united <laughs> but he was McTominay that night probably was uh, legitimately the man of the match. He played so well. Uh, but for, for United, it's it's just great that you're able to have this debate where they've got five excellent midfielders to choose from and pretty much only three at the very maximum are going to get in for games. Um, I think Solskjaer tried to accommodate uh, McTominay, Fred, 
Matic and Fernandez against Everton and the Diamond. So there are times when he, they might be able to um, accommodate four of them. But with the, with the benches being expanded, he has got excellent options to choose from, uh, be it from the start or be it during the games. Yeah, I've written a piece for today's uh, for the only MEN about the potential systems that Solskjaer could use and a, a diamond could be one obviously a way of getting mm. four of those midfielders in instead of five he, he actually went with a, a three at the back five at the back whatever you want to call it last time they played Sheffield United uh, and that's something we might might have seen against Tottenham because he's been playing that in the big games a fair bit this season as well can you see the four two three one sticking around for, for the time being obviously James played on the right and had a had a rather quiet game didn't he yeah, James was was poor. Unfortunately for him, uh, I think this this certainly since the turn of the year, he's pretty much not in his status because he keeps keeps being played, and especially in the the big games. But he does now resemble more of a, a rotation player rather than a regular. Uh, Greenwood offered you know more. He, I think Greenwood's just got more about him as a footballer anyway. He is just a more talented footballer. He can go on the outside and go on the inside. He was like um, against Spurs, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I did him a disservice with my rating at first, and then I quickly changed it because you've got your head buried in your laptop at times. But he did bring some dynamism to the game. He's got more variety about him. He did unsettle Tottenham as well, um, just just with his trickery in general. Um, I mean, with the forty-three-one, sometimes it can look. It can look very rigid, but that is depending. That is dependent on on who you um, who you pick in the team. I think if you've got Daniel James on the right wing, then it is going to be rigid because he's always going to go on the outside. There's not much variety to his game um, unless he's playing on the left. So if you've got Greenwood in instead, you've got someone who obviously can move inside. Uh, Solskjaer has said, I think after Greenwood played against Newcastle and Boxing Day, he said that even though he's playing on the right on paper, they're trying to push him into the middle as much as possible because that's where he does the damage. He's, he's a goal scorer and he's always been a goal scorer in, in the junior teams for United. So, of course, Tosca's already talked about it in terms of the systems, uh, the use of midfielders. It's, the use of midfielders, it, it is dependent on the opposition. I think a game like Sheffield United, who are coming off a, a real whipping at Newcastle, a, a surprise result in a lot of ways, losing three 0 there. They've not going to, they're not going to have Henderson in goal either. Um, it's it's one of those games where you don't really see really see the need for much tactical variety. You could just play Matic, Pogba, Fernandez um, in any any way whatsoever, and. With all due respect to Sheffield United, because they have been a very good team this season, they're having a phenomenal season, uh, given where they are in the league. But it is still a game that they should win, especially given the result that Sheffield United had up at Newcastle. Yeah, it's probably the ideal fixture, isn't it, to, to yeah. play Popper in that deeper position and, and not worry too much about the balance of the team. and A home, home game, albeit with that, not with the crowd, but you just feel like United can take the confidence of that second half against Spurs straight into this game with a, with a quick turnaround. Absolutely. Um, I mean, United for some reason have been treating it, treating these banners in the uh, in the stadium like state secrets. They don't want to reveal anything, as if it's this uh, I don't know, like a, a second statue of Sir Alex Ferguson. But they they have been making adjustments inside the stadium to make it a little bit more colourful, as all the other clubs have. Um, I mean, it does it does feel rather pointless. I don't think um, I don't think a banner which is not being held aloft by anyone it's just been propped up by seats is is going to do much for players whatsoever I, I think it's much for muchness whether it's a banner or empty seats um but it's, it's one mosaic as well something like that. 
Yeah, well, Ferguson always, um, I think he made a big thing about the, the, the Believe mosaic before the semi-final in 2008 against Barcelona. I mean, I've never been a particular fan of mosaics. I think that the whole, uh, what they do on the continent sometimes with, uh, is it TIFOs or whatever Tifo, they're called? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they, you know, some of them are genuinely impressive. The choreography um, on the continent is, is a level above what you get in England most of the time. Yeah, we've not um, quite got that right, have we? In the, no, in the no, I, I, no. It's it's some way off, and I don't think the Premier League are, or, or, are particularly fussed about incorporating that into um, into their brand either. Uh, but it's it'll be interesting to see how United go about it. I mean, I've this this is a weird claim to fame, but I have played in empty Old Trafford Stadium after the <laughs> pitch day last year, and uh, I felt no nerves whatsoever. It was just like being at home and blah blah blah. But no, it's it's going to be um, it, it'll be quite surreal watching a match at Old Trafford that isn't a reserve game or a youth youth cup game um and it's and it's completely empty and of course with with reserve and youth cup games you have got something of a crowd there anyway but uh it's it's going to be a surreal experience but it's it's unfortunately it's it's something that's you know in place until the end of the season but what i would say is i do hate this phrase the new normal um, yes. unfortunately if if this was the new normal then it just wouldn't be sustainable and clubs would be going bust left right and center so well, it's, it's uh, a temporary normal isn't it it's not it's not here that's to stay, right you would hope yeah i thought it was i thought it's pretty poor of united to even use it in a tweet um on, on the day of the Tottenham game, I know it sounds like I'm easily offended when I'm actually not, but I, I, you know, we don't want it to be the new normal. It's not the new normal. You want stadiums packed out with fans and especially, at, um, especially low down the pyramid as well. League one, league two clubs are in, in dire straits and they need to, they need people back in stadiums as soon as possible. And hopefully that happens sooner rather than later as, as long as it's safe to do so. Yeah. I was going to just ask you because obviously you you had you've been in that position of seeing a game behind closed doors and you've had that you're hearing those sounds that maybe we don't quite pick up on TV especially if we're if we turn the fan noise on which I'm still not quite decided whether I prefer it on or off to be honest but <laughs> what is that experience like you, you, which players do you hear hear shouting screaming at their teammates I expect the likes of Harry Maguire in the United team Jordan Henderson was very audible last night for Liverpool you hear him screaming at his teammates it's, it's a bit of an interesting one for for a journalist, isn't it? It is. I think it's probably journalistically the um, the biggest upside about behind closed doors games, and there aren't many upsides behind uh, for for behind closed doors games. You want you want st- you want supporters there for obvious reasons. You get more colour from supporters than uh, sometimes the games uh, going on in front of you. But the fact that you can hear them is is a bonus. And you know, Harry Maguire, uh, Harry Winks, and Scott McTominay were the most vocal, certainly in the first half. Uh, it was interesting how how simple Solskjaer's instructions were. Um, I found, like, I think he he shouted to Marshall. He said, "Anto, get in the box." And of course, Marshall, given the way he played, uh, stayed outside the box. <laughs> and then later on in the game, when he got into the area, he, he, he threw a brilliant save from from Lloris. Um, Pogba was quite vocal while he was warming up as well. So just hearing all that, you're making note of it, and you think, well, this 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 might as well be the the hook of the piece, really, which um, which is what I decided to do. I think, I mean, from my perspective, I always go back to something I, it was an interview Gary Lineker gave um, a long, long time ago. And he was told um, when he started at the BBC, uh, Brian Barwick was in charge of BBC Sport, who later became chief executive of the FA. And the advice he was given was to tell people what they can't see. Now, 
I don't think match of the day really do that anymore and haven't done that for a long time, given the way you know, there are constraints on how they analyse games. But that comment has always stuck with me in that if you've got the privileged position of being at a game and covering it and reporting it, you want to tell people what they haven't seen, what they cannot see, what they cannot hear. Now, of course, some will hear what what the players are saying. I mean, you know, they, they pierce the air. It's, it's difficult not to hear them, but sometimes you don't know who's saying it. So that colour was, was, was great from for my piece, really. So I just decided to build a piece around what Pogba was saying uh, before he actually came on, because as I said, he was quite vocal. He was quite encouraging. He was he was very engaged with what was going on. Uh, but you knew sooner or later he was going to have to come on. And I suppose the only surprise with Pogba was that, um, given that he warmed up at half-time, they, they waited until the 60-minute the mark to bring him on. Yeah, that was a little strange. And, and Greenwood as well, really, because given the impact they both had. And we're talking about that that team selection debate. I mean, I guess that the most doubtful position you'd probably say is, is right wing. And, and that explains a little bit United's uh, transfer strategy going into the, the summer window. We're obviously inundated with uh, stories and claims about Borussia Dortmund and Jaden Sancho. I think he only played 12 minutes off the bench uh, against RB Leipzig at, at the weekend. Uh, United are pretty unmoved in their in their intentions to sign Sancho and do you think that's probably the the right way to go based on how their squad's balancing out at the moment yeah I mean it boils down to some simple facts and I think Yana Agafiotov on on Twitter um put it well uh if, if anyone can find his tweet but essentially the crux of it is that Dortmund will sell him for a certain price a preferred price uh United are interested in him United probably, and this goes for other clubs, probably wouldn't meet what Dortmund want for him because of the pandemic, because of the economic realities um, regarding transfer fees and the current climate. But if Dortmund are are offered a hell of a lot of money up front for him with achievable add-ons, let's say, the likelihood is that they would accept that because he is about to enter the last two years of his contract. His resale value has already plummeted from last year. I genuinely think that if, say, United qualified for the Champions League last season um, and they went all out for Sancho, which they would have done, then Dortmund could maybe have got 150 million for him at the time. He was His stock was that high and... United would have had the extra revenue as well from the Champions League. Um, but now, while Sancho is becoming a better player, his re- his value is actually dwindling purely because of his contract length and the situation there. And he's not going to sign um, an extension with Dortmund. Everybody knows that. Um, Dortmund, obviously, have got a history of letting a world-class player go, a, a player who was, who was better at the time that he left uh, than Sancho for free in, in Robert Lewandowski. And that stance, I mean, as, as principled as it was, what all that happened was that they they lost their, probably their best striker in a generation. He joined Bayern Munich and all he, and while he's been at Bayern Munich, he's prolonged their, their hegemony in, uh, in the Bundesliga. So they are going to, they're going to, they're going to have to take a hit on Sancho at some stage, I think, um, because they're not going to get, they certainly won't get nine figures when he's in the last year of his contract next year. And you don't know what could happen in the next year. He could get injured. His his form might tail off. Um, he might might toss it off, really. Um, I wouldn't put that past him. He stopped turning up for training uh, towards the end of his days at Manchester City because he'd had enough and he wanted to leave. So I think there is a way of United 
been able to do that deal this summer. But there are so many variables. And one of the variables is, it, of course, what European competition, if any, they are playing in next season. Um, I think if United aren't in the Champions League, then it looks very, very doubtful that they would be able to pull, pull off that deal. I think they lost £28 million pounds, um, in their last financial results for, for the last quarter. Um, I think £4 million alone from the Tottenham game that was postponed in, in mid-March. So even though United are a club that have spent a lot of money, they, they are not immune from the, the impact of, of the pandemic and, of course, from uh, the team's own own form. And, and obviously, they've, they've got a number of routes into the Champions League next season. But unfortunately for them, Chelsea, who normally... It's almost... It used to be that if United dropped points, Chelsea would drop points or vice versa. But at the weekend, Chelsea actually did win. And they've pulled away, you know, pulled away from United a little bit. And I think they're five points clear now. So it's... Um, and, and, and games are running out. So United really need to ensure they get in the Champions League. And of course, if they do it through the Premier League, that's the best case scenario. But if they were to get in the Champions League through winning the Europa League, the Europa League final is on, I believe, the 21st of August. UEFA have recommended that the transfer window closes on the 5th of October. I think that gives United some like 45 days to sign players effectively because a lot of players, not not every player, but some players are going to be hesitant to join them until they know what competition they're in next season. I don't think that's the case with someone like Jack Grealish, who is currently the captain of, unfortunately for Aston Villa, a sinking ship, um, who is desperate to to leave this summer, whether Villa stay up or go down, because he's just got to that point in his career, and that's perfectly understandable. And that really chimes with how United went about their transfer strategy last year, in that they made this big thing about... Um, prioritising British players, which was all well and good and everything, but it also was a convenient excuse to sign those players rather than going on uh, going for other targets because they went in the Champions League. Players like Harry Maguire, Wan-Bissaka, Daniel James, you know, they, they were playing for clubs that were mid mid to low tape, to low half the table in the Premier League, or in James's case, a Championship side. So selling United to those types of players was never going to be very difficult. Um, and this similar with Fernandes as well, in that he was playing for a Europa League side um, in sport in Lisbon. And he was making a big leap from a team that haven't, haven't done much in Portuguese football for a long, long time to one of the biggest clubs in the world, making a hell of a lot of money in the process. So, uh, as I said, there are so many variables between now and the end of the season. There are so many nuances with transfer deals, depending on certain players. But from United's perspective, it is absolutely vital that they finish and that they qualify for the Champions League um, through the Premier League or, you know, through the Court of Arbitration for Sport, keeping City out of it. But even with that, in terms of a fifth place finish, Wolves are level on points with United now. So there's there's a lot of pressure on them all of a sudden um, with Chelsea winning and, and Wolves winning. Yeah, some, some huge games coming up for United. And you think the running that they've got is probably one of the more favourable ones of uh, of the top four contenders. I mean, mm-hmm. looking ahead to, to the Sheffield United game, a lot of talk is going to be about Dean Henderson. Obviously, in, in a, eligible, I can never say that word, ineligible <laughs> for, the, uh, for the game. Do you think... I mean, I, I guess I guess you put a story out today, haven't you, about um, Henderson's future and um, the guarantees that he uh, needs mm. from United to stay at the club. Do you see those being met? I mean, this is this is going to be a huge decision for Solskjaer. Aside from those transfer ones that we mentioned, the Henderson De Gea decision is go- is going to be huge, isn't it, for next season? It is. Um, 
I can't, I'm struggling to think of a goalkeeping handover in in recent United history that has been quite as colossal as that. Maybe you'd have to go back to, and this was a one-off, but Jim Layton being dropped for the FA Cup final replay in 1990 for, for Les So That really is a history lesson for, for yeah, it's, it's it, it is a It is a huge decision. And I, again, I think it kind of helped United that Henderson was taken down a peg at the weekend by ha- not having a, a great day at the office with Sheffield United um, in that it allows them to take stock. Henderson isn't, you know, he has dropped some clangers, uh, Liverpool way, sorry, not away. Um, Liverpool at home, Liverpool won yeah. at Bramall Lane earlier in the season. The Euros last summer. Um, I mean, that was interesting what happened at the Euros in that Henderson got a lot of plaudits for the opening game when he played against France and he played very well. Um, even though I think he left his, I think he left his near post unguarded for the for the France equaliser, and then Wan Bissaka scored an own goal that won it for them in the end. But after the game, there was a tweet saying when you've become when you've replaced David de Gea as Man United number one or something to that effect. And Henderson, being the, the cocky lad that he is, liked it on Twitter. And then, unfortunately for him, three or four days later, England are playing against Romania, and he, he drops a clanger. Romania win and England go out and I think Les Reed was quite critical of some players being distracted about contracts uh, a couple of months later and apparently had Henderson in mind which seems a bit harsh I think he should be looking a bit closer to home and Adrian Boothroyd who really is just not a good enough coach to be um, managing the England under 21 uh, especially that that calibre of squad which was excellent and really should have been probably winning the tournament but that's an example that when there's a bit of hype around Henderson he can let it go to his head uh, which is another similarity he shares with Joe Hart I mean he is he's very very the parallels between him and Hart are borderline eerie in that they both um, have a bond with Shrewsbury Town uh, they've both turned 23 in, in a season where sorry they both turned 23 in Hart's case he was 23 um, when he was on loan at Birmingham City just before a major tournament, which he should have started at for some reason. He didn't even get a kick at the 2010 World Cup. Rob Green and David James played ahead of him. Uh, Dean Henderson, in his case, I know the Euros have been cancelled, but he was putting pressure on Pickford to start for England at the Euros. So th- th- there are those similarities and in terms of the personality, the cocksure nature of them. I mean, our colleague Tyrone, um, Tyrone Marshall did a piece on Henderson the other the other month and he spoke to one of his former coaches who said when he was on loan at Shrewsbury, he'd catch a shot and pretend to sign it, sign his autograph on it and toss it back. I mean, you can absolutely imagine him doing that because that is that is his, his nature. And in that sense, he is the exact opposite of De Gea. He's an extrovert to De Gea's introvert. Uh, introverted personality and I think that that will be attractive to a lot of United fans who remember Peter Schmeichel uh, who was a formidable presence who would you know start fighting an empty room or in these days an an empty stadium and (laughs) I suppose at times you know with De Gea I suspect he's maybe a little bit too comfortable now Um, he's on a long Long, long contract, 300 grand a week. He's 29, I think he turns this year. Real Madrid, that that ship has sailed. Um, his his girlfriend isn't complaining what Manchester's like anymore and doesn't seem to mind the fact that he's still in Manchester. So I suspect it's just, it might come down to that, that De Gea seems to be a little bit too much in his comfort zone. And Henderson, one of the first things he said at Sheffield United was that I don't want to be in my comfort zone. He just seems like the younger and hungrier goalkeeper. And I suspect that might just give him the edge. 
And I think one of the interesting things that has been overlooked is that Sergio Romero recently switched agencies. He's now represented by the Stella Group, uh, which, of course, represents Gareth Bale. And Stella also have Henderson as a client. And, of course, when you switch agencies, more often than not, that leads to a transfer. Romero's out of contract next year. I think he's a good enough goalkeeper to, you know, kind of... um, supplement a Mexican standoff between United's Argentinian, Spanish and, and English goalkeepers, but there's every chance he'll stand aside, which gives Henderson a more direct route to uh, the United first team. Yeah, and it's very interesting that you mentioned Peter Schmeichel in that debate as well, because I think he said something recently about that, how Henderson hasn't had the pressure that, uh, that United number one has, and, and it's so much more difficult being the first choice goalkeeper at Old Trafford than at a club like Sheffield United. Uh, we'll have yeah. to see whether those comments will be uh, it'll be made to be a little bit embarrassed by those comments if Sheffield United get a result at Old Trafford on, on Wednesday night. But um, as we said before, Samuel, it does look like a game that is really there for the taking for United, and especially without Henderson and without John Egan as well, who is suspended after his red card against Newcastle. Um, the United fans should be fairly bullish about this one, shouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, the, the home advantage is is very minor, given that there are no supporters, but Going back to the the Bramall Lane game, uh, I mean, I think Bramall Lane is my one of my new favourite stadiums after that experience. The, the atmosphere was was phenomenal, and it clearly got to the United players there. They they buckled in that first half. Not that first half, sorry. I think the whole game, bar from that weird seven or eight minutes when they scored three yeah, goals, bizarre. they were absolutely abysmal. And it was it was one of those games at the end of it that you you didn't know how to make head or tail of it. And that United had had this great comeback after playing abysmally, but then we foiled right at the end by Barley McBurney. So it's unfortunately I don't think we're it cannot gonna be have as a, chaotic as that. It cannot be I don't unfortunately I don't think we're gonna have a game anywhere near as chaotic or as anywhere near as enthralling as that one in November. Um but as as you said, I think where where United got players back and where they did play I thought reasonably well um at, at Tottenham apart from maybe that twenty minute period at the end of the first half. They they should be pretty bullish about their chances. Every um, every major player is is fit. Um, they've they've got the luxury of choosing their first eleven, whatever that might be. So they they should be expecting to win this game, and really they have got to win this game. Chelsea have got obviously the, the City game coming up pretty soon. Um, so United have got to see that as an advantage to try and exert more pressure on Chelsea after falling five points behind them. Yeah, could, could close the gap to two points again uh, to Chelsea with a, with a win, and if Chelsea do slip up against City, and they can obviously brush off Sheffield United who've been that sort of devil on their shoulder for for some time in the table now um so yeah we get, can I get a prediction from you Samuel before we go uh I hate predictions but I, I will oblige you and I'll go with 2-0 United oh that's very 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 kind of you and I hope you enjoy the uh, the experience on Wednesday night it should be a little bit of a strange one an MTL Trafford but United gunning for uh, their first win since the coronavirus pandemic and the the restart and that will pretty much leave you with that on the Manchester Red podcast for this week. Thank you very much, Samuel, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And I hope you can listen again to us very soon. Obviously, keep in touch with all the latest United news on the MEN and all our football pages. Thanks for joining us.